Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome back again. We are uh, blessed to have Tim Thomas with us here again this evening. This will be his second and final evening here with us this week. For those of you who uh, haven't been here yet this week, Tim was here last night and um, is here with us for two evenings. So from Pickens, South Carolina. Uh, Tim, we'll turn it over to you at this time. If you don't get any, I got lots of them I'll give that uh, no, you have to record it. I like to hear what people say to them then, so yeah, that'll be good. Well, good evening. Glad to be with you. Um, if you're like me, a you know, long day. I don't know what you were all doing today, but got to kind of shift gears and, and uh, uh, was excited to come and, and share the word and see what you guys, uh, what you guys have learned, what you guys, uh, what you guys have studied. So I'm just going to dive right into it. We are talking about uh, business ethics, but we're in uh, Genesis, the first of Genesis, and uh, looking for some kind of uh, clue with, uh, to help us with the idea, what is the root cause of our issues with the business ethics? Uh, so again, you know, we, we, we have these issues, and we're not sure quite what to do. We want help with those. But I think to get help, we need to find out what is actually causing it. What is the, what is the root cause of this? And I think that will help us in, in as we evaluate. Because in the end, some of these things are going to be different. Depending on the situation, the situation is different. But the being between people and where you're at with, in your walk with God at that time and in your journey, there, there's, there's, there's not necessarily total right and wrong on some of that. You know, there's going to be a little bit of variance in there, you know, maybe with some things. Uh, but I think, I, I think as you find God, as you, as you allow God to speak to you on the issues, I think it will be clearer to us than we like to make it out to be. And I find that a lot in questions that are, that are brought to me. Uh, in fact, actually, um, you know, um, Mark and his wife, where we were just having, uh, grabbing a bite to eat on our, on our way over here. And uh, you know, just that issue, people come and ask questions. Usually, they actually already know the answer to the question. You just got to kind of help lead them and asking the right questions in their own mind. And you don't even have to say the answer. They will find the answer. They will come to the answer themselves. Deep down, we really know the answer to a lot of our questions that we, on the surface, we struggle with. Uh, and I think that's a, a little bit what I'm, what I'm looking at here. So, Genesis chapter 2, I gave you the assignment, Genesis 1 and 2. We have what I like to say, creation 1A and 1B. There are seemingly two different versions of creation here. Um, why is there? What differences are there? Did you look at it? What's your thoughts? Young, bright minds. You asked last night about the six days versus the day the Lord had. Mm -hmm. He created it. Um, is that simply stating time? You read Isaiah and Jeremiah and they talk about 
and in that day, and in that day, meaning in that time. Is that relates between the two? Yeah, no, that's that's a, a good popular to think about. Is it? Uh, and I'm not going to pretend here and say definitively is it or isn't it. I, I think what you're going to find, though, I would think is if you believe it's seven literal days, you're going to believe this is one literal day. In a weird sense. Yeah. Okay. You actually, I think you were the one that, you were real warm last night. You were actually on the right track when you think about it. Okay. So before we go there, tell me just reading. Remember, I told you to read it out loud. I won't ask how many of you read it out loud. Uh, just read the two creation things out loud and what strikes you. What is the difference here? In, in the wording. Okay, I'll, I'll just do it for you. And you, you tell me. So we got the Genesis 1. Um, Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and I'm going to kind of skip through here some, and God said, let there be the firmament in the midst of the waters, and God made the firmament, and God called the firmament heaven, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together, and God called the dry land earth. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed. And God said, let there be lights in the firmaments. And God made two great lights, and God made them in the firmament. Now I'm just going to switch over to the other version, creation 1b. Starts in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Uh, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. Verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree. Are you catching anything yet? Lord God. Versus God. Okay, it's very stark. Every single reference to God in the first account of creation is God. It's translated in our King James. Okay, and that, that is the Hebrew word Elohim. Okay, in the second version, it switches like night and day, very starkly, the second version of creation, it's Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. Okay, did you catch it? You know, read it. It's, it is so stark, and, I, and I, I'm just like you. When I first someone mentioned it, I was like, oh, that. Yeah. Okay, so when you read the Bible, and you guys, you know, that you know, I was here a couple years ago, and, you, and so you might remember what I told you then, and pay attention. God does not do these things idly. This is not just some mistake in the printer. All right? This, this, this is intentional. Okay? And so, uh, you know, I was talking to some of the guys here beforehand. This, this, is, this is God trying to speak to you. All right? God has a secret message in him. You guys, if you like, you know, intrigue and you like little mysteries and riddles, the Bible, God has planted an untold number of deep things that he just wants you to find. God is not handing this to you on a silver platter. He's doing this intentionally. You really want to find God, you really want to know what God wants, you really want God to speak to you, you've got to work at it. Again, I think some of this is our modern culture. It's instant everything. We want everything handed to us. You know, and we want our you know, fast food meals. We want our microwave, you know, whatever. We want everything to do it. Uh, if you really want to find God and know God, you've got to dig. And, but it's not hard. This isn't rocket science. Read it. 
Like I just said, read it out loud. And God and God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. It's like God has a point here. So, yeah, let's say it was the point. Uh, God, Elohim. Uh, anybody know what Elohim means? God who sees and knows us. God is what? The God who sees and knows us. God who sees and knows us. The Elohim is, is the creator God. Okay? It is, it is the God is talking about the God of power. Uh, you know, all creation. Uh, it, is, uh, it is also the term it used when it's talking about God in the sense of the authoritative figure, uh, his justice. That is Elohim. Okay? What is Lord God? Yeah, Jehovah, Yahweh. This, this is, this is, yeah, God that wants to be in covenant. This is the personal God. Okay? This is the God who, who loves you, the, the God who cares for you, the God who pursues you, the God who wants to be in covenant with you. This is the personal, intimate God. Now you think about it, what do we struggle with in our churches and Christianity all through history? And it goes way back to the beginning. I think God, you know, God knows that He created us. You look at the vast different number of churches that there are, what is a, in summary, and I'm talking about in churches that, that believe in, you know, Judeo-Christian that believe in some form of the, the biblical God, what is the, 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 the stereotype general thing that differentiates us is our view of God between the creator, authoritative, thou shalt God, and the loving, caring God. Okay? Humans have a hard time putting the two together. Okay? We even wrestle with it in our homes, you know, as fathers. And striking that balance between discipline and love. Okay? We, we, we have to really work at it. God is telling them, our Creator, our God, the God who created us, He is both. We're given two different versions of creation because you have both. Yes, God is the creator God. He can create you. He can snuff you out in this. But yet, he's the Lord God who loves you, who cares for you, um, who wants to be in relationship with you. But think about that God. It's a come to the other than the difference, the one day versus the seven day. And you, see, you said last night, it's the issue, well, is one a different perspective than God that you mentioned. Time is not relevant to God. Okay? Time is not something that, that uh, defines God. Okay? He does not exist in time. Like we think of time. So how do you create something in one day? This Lord God, what he's speaking of here is the intense presence of God. Okay? And it falls after, this is, and it coincides here, again, you've got to think back to the Sabbath, the seventh day. God created space for the humans in the first six days. He created time on that seventh day because he knows he wants to be then that intimate God who has a relationship with you. He wants you to focus and invest and be with him. He wants to be intensely present with you. And so yes, to God's viewpoint, creation was done in a day because there is not defined by time. But I want you to think about this in your relationship with God. I mean, this is, this is so huge. I can feel the chills going down my back now. When, when, this, when you think about this, and this becomes real to you, God not being defined by time, and we were talking about this at home in our home church, and not long after that, we had communion. 
and what, what a blessing it was to sit there in communion. And the way we do communion, then we eventually you know, have everything. We kind of come up in a circle, and, and uh, as, as we're uh, you know observing the Lord's table there, and give some time for testimonies there, and as ways we're talking, and some young person spoke up and said, you know what? As we observe this and we're put in remembrance of what Christ has done for us on that day back then, as we're communing with God, God is communing with Adam and Eve in the garden right now today. To God, that's true. Do you realize that? Creation's done in a day. Everything's in a day. It's all in the moment. God has the ability to be so intensely present and so right now, as we're talking, we're thinking about God, we're asking God to be with us, God is walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Yeah, I realize this may sound kind of weird to you. I'm sorry if it does, but... But to me, this is big. Because I mean, God, then, on the seventh day, He's inviting us into that intense presence. He's saying, yeah, I know you've got all these other things to do. You know, you're living in this world I created. Uh, you have to do these things. Of course, you've got a sinful world now. You've got to put up with all that. But I want one day, I want you to be intensely present. I don't want to be ignored on the other days. But one day, quit creating. The seventh day is that God is a God who knows when to stop. God is a God who knew when to stop creating. And He stopped because He wanted to be intensely present with you. And what do we do to him? We come and play a little bit of church you know, for a few hours. And then we get self-absorbed in other pursuits and family and all this. And God is just crying out, I created you. I That seventh day, notice what he says here. If nothing else, and I know I belabor this point a lot, but verse 3, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. And it says later that it was holy. If God sanctified and declared that something is holy, I would pay attention. Alright? This is pre-law. This is pre-Moses. This is creation mandate. This is creation principle here. God wants to be intensely present with you. And to God, yeah, creation is all in the day. Because all this is happening, in, in, but yet God still wants to be with you. Uh, you have to cultivate presence with God. Uh, and I think we talked about some of this last time I was in there. Uh, kavana uh, is, is the ability, the Hebrew word, their idea of, of intentionally cultivating God's presence and awareness of God's presence in the moment. We look so much at God as being some being, some force out there somewhere that yes, Created everything, has a lot of effect on my life, and yeah, I love him, I want to do what he says, but he's there. God wants to be intensely present right here with you. And I guess we got adults here, maybe some younger ones, you know, watch here, but you know, as, as you uh, learn to love someone, and, uh, and for you that are, you know, as, as you're getting married, and as, as you married, and you older ones got this down pat, I know, but the ability... To be intensely present with your spouse. Now the problem is, we don't do very good at that anymore either. Or <laughs> humans have always struggled with that. 
But if you can come, you cultivate that love and that presence, the reason we have a lot of marriage issues is because husbands and wives aren't very present with each other. They interact in a surface level, they do, but they, they have not, they do not, are intentional about being intensely present. And you know how it is, I and mean, we all do this to some extent, you know, and the wife's talking, and uh, it's like, yeah, you're just paying enough attention to know if she's saying something you need to respond, so you can go, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're really tuning your act and your mind's on something else. Okay, that's the opposite of being intensely present. Intensely present is when you focus and you you know, and I've tried to look in Ben's eyes to see what he's thinking, that's kind of scary. Uh, but, but you know, as, as you, uh, uh, we, we don't do well anymore as humans of being intensely present with anybody. But most of all, you, you, need to, you need to cultivate, it takes work to be intentional about cultivating that presence with God. He wants it with you. To the point that he sanctified a whole day for it. That we barely give him a couple hours a lot of times. Okay, so let's, we need to get to the business ethics here. Um, so the two versions of creation. Uh, and we have then the creation. And by the way, you can tell the difference because uh, as it goes into this creation 1B, uh, in, in creation 1A, it's just yeah, on the sixth day God created man. Okay, what does it do in the second version of creation, the Lord God version of creation? He took man and he formed him from the dust of the ground. And it's that specific intentional care given. See, it's, it's that representation of what went on in creation. Uh, it's, it's the intimate level and detail of creation. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Um, going on then, I talked a little bit of this this morning at the deacon seminar and the devotional. It says in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now the garden and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, where were these? Uh, by the way, this is interesting, and again, I don't want to make... I don't want to make light of this, but I want to challenge your complacency again. Uh, maybe it's that out-of-the-box stuff that we were talking about. Um, what's the deal with magical trees? You think about it, you, you know, most of you know the story of creation like the back of your hand. It's all commonplace to you. Yeah, you got the straight light, the straight light, it's a good deal. You're talking magical trees here, right? What's the deal with the magical trees? Doesn't it seem a little fairy tale-ish? Yeah, anyhow, where so where is these where are these trees? Is there any water up here? If someone could get me a drink of water or something, that'd be great. Where are the trees? In the middle. In the middle. Okay, and I purposely tried to. I said trees. Are both trees in the middle of the garden? What does it say? It says the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, comma, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? So then we get to, we know the story here. We, we know Adam and, uh, uh, Adam and Eve, and, and Eve's there. She's being tempted by the serpent. And, uh, sorry, my fault. Sorry, I need to get up. And so she, uh, she's tempted by the serpent. To drink from to eat, drink to eat from the tree of the of the knowledge of good and evil. But where is she? 
Notice after, after, let's jump ahead in the story a little bit. She, she takes of the fruit. Adam sees it. He takes also. God comes. And in verse 8, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Why was God asking, Where art thou? Did he not know where they were at? God knew where they were at. So why did he say, where are they? We, we know God, God knew where they were at. He's not just playing with them. The wording here is actually, uh, why aren't you where you're supposed to be? So it's like, I told my, my son to be here doing this work, you know, whatever it is, digging out the dish, and I get there, and he's not there, and I go, Josh, where are you? Okay, it's not the point that I don't, I'm not sure where he's at. It's the point that he's not where he's supposed to be. And that's the, that's the phrase here. It's Adam and Eve, why aren't you where you're supposed to be? Where were they supposed to be? In the midst of the garden. Uh, again, the, the idea here is focus. Where are they focusing? The tree of life is in the midst, middle of the garden. God wants to meet with them in the middle of the garden. You look at the word, do the word study on the word in the midst or in the middle. Uh, in scripture, and it's, it's really interesting. Tie again, this theme runs all the way through your scripture. The Bible is so interwoven together. God wants us in the midst. The tabernacle, when they built the tabernacle, where was it supposed to be? In the middle of the camp. Uh, you know, many other things here. It talks about being, being in, in the midst. Uh, so they weren't where they were supposed to be. Eve was, she was tempted. This, this whole temptation and the sin because she wasn't focused on what she was supposed to be focusing on. This other was kind of intriguing to her. God says, where aren't you? Why aren't you where you're supposed to be? Yeah, no wonder you get in trouble because you're focused somewhere else. Okay? Now, this, this, this whole thing of the trees now, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in your, in your mind, what, what did it do? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So once she went crunch, whatever, you know, in your, your mental image of whatever the fruit was, and she eats, what happens? She knew sin or disobedience. She knew sin or disobedience? Okay. Anybody want to add anything to that? She started focusing on herself. Okay, then she started focusing on herself. Yeah, that's good. Good. Yeah, did she know right and wrong before this? She had a choice before this. Right. So a lot of times we think it's a knowledge of tree, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So she didn't know right and wrong. But God clearly says, hey, you know what? You can eat everything, but just don't eat of these. You're commanded not to. So obviously they knew right and wrong. I mean, why would, God, why would God say that? If God, you know, if they were just going to ignore, they didn't understand what God meant by saying no. You know, if they don't know right and wrong, they don't know if he said no, they don't know that right and wrong, yeah, he wouldn't have said it. They, they had a knowledge of, of right and wrong before. What is the real issue with this tree? Yeah, what happened? And you, you know, where you're going with that. Uh, yeah, what is, the, what is the actual effect here? We'll start with one thing here, and, and then I'll get to a specific. Okay, it comes to another chiasm. There's a chiasm here. 
If you look at the end of chapter 2, last verse of chapter 2, and they both were naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Okay, now, now think about it. You've got to get the context here. He's detailing out creation again. And uh, Adam, you're giving the names, and then Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. Uh, we got him taken out the rib, and then verse 24, There shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall, know, you know, they shall be one flesh. And then we got one more thought added on here, kind of as a, just a boink. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. It's like this is a public service announcement. <laughs> okay, um, that's interesting. All right? When you get to the end of the story of the temptation, uh, what do we have? Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. So what is he doing? He's dealing with this nakedness. All right? So this story of the temptation is bookended by the issue of nakedness. All right? And I've always challenged people. Again, I can say some of these things. I come from non background. And... Uh, but I often hear you say, well, why are we so hung up on clothes? You know, and oh, this and this and that, with clothes that are, you know, and I understand what they're saying to some extent. Uh, but I'd also like to point out to them, in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, God's awful hung up on clothes, isn't he? You know, he points out, well, yeah, they're naked. And then by the end, their clothes weren't good enough. Right? God gave them proper clothing. And it was the first response their first response to sin, to that, in, in that looking at themselves is the idea of clothes. The first thing they did after they ate of this fruit was put on clothes. Something to do with clothes. And God's first physical action with humans after that was to give them better clothes. So, don't use the, uh, I, I tell people when we're talking about it and they're getting, you know, they, they think you focus too much on clothes. I said, uh, oh, before you go too far with that, you know, uh, God actually has a history of this, all right? So it must be uh, an issue worth debating, okay? I'll just throw that out for free. Uh, but this issue of the fruit, and what did it do? Well, I think part of it, let, let's hit what Eve says here, and then we'll deal with the nakedness and, and what, that, what that can show us. So when we get to the temptation, we're looking at the fruit. Look at verse 6. So chapter 3, verse 6. You know, we have, oh, and there, there's, there's just beautiful stuff here in the serpent. Uh, I mean, there, there's so much here in, in these verses. Uh, I, I encourage you to go, go study it. And I, I was telling uh, Doug there, uh, there, there's a fellow by the name of Rabbi David Foreman uh, who has some real weird stuff, and he has a lot of stuff from some of the ancient rabbis, but that's, uh, 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 that's uh, some of the things that, that, that I've been studying here and where, where I think this, this came from was pointed out. But... But in the, the whole issue with the serpent, uh, again, from the Jewish mindset, is, is way different from ours and just where, uh, where, where this came from. But we'll, we'll, we'll leave that. But the serpent here is, is tempting the woman. Uh, and, and, yeah, we could go into their whole discussion. But just for the sake of what did the fruit do, says in verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Now, the first, the first part of that verse, or that verse, where do you recognize those words? And again, an important thing in Scripture is always think about where have you heard this before? All right? Repeated words of Scripture 
exact phrasing, and again, it helps if you, if you look at it in the Hebrew, use your uh, blue letter Bible there, and you can look at it, but think about where you hear the same phrasing before. It is uncanny the connections in these stories all throughout the Old Testament that are connected on purpose because of exact phrasing. Okay, so where where have we heard? Where did Eve get this thought process on this fruit? The woman saw the tree was good for food and that was pleasant to the eyes. Where do we where do we get that from? Where was it said before? It's verse nine of chapter two. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. All right? It's, it's, the phrases are reversed, uh, but it's the same exact, exact phrases. I think in the Hebrew they're, they're actually the same word. But what does Eve think about it? What is interjected into verse 6, three verse, chapter 3, verse 6, that's not in chapter 2, verse 9? Right. Desire. It is the desire. Okay. What is the issue with the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It is the issue of desire. Now think back to the, this nakedness. End of chapter 2, they're both naked and his wife, they were not ashamed. In the end, it's bookended by God did something. He helped clothe their nakedness. In a chiasm, you're often looking for the middle. Is there another reference to nakedness in the middle of chapter 3? He says, yes, uh, verse 10 uh, let's read verse 9. The Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was, a rec- and I was embarrassed because I was naked. Is that what it says? And I was ashamed because I was naked. Is that what it says? I was afraid. Okay, this is not a little, you know, like we want to see the fig leaves. You know, oh, my mind. And all of a sudden I realize I'm naked. No, he's actually afraid. This is fear. Because he's understanding the desire and what sin does to desire. And uncontrolled desire. Think about it. All the evils in the world and, and all the, uh, the atrocities that we see uh, you know, perpetrated on people and what we see in the world around us and throughout history it's because of unrestrained desire of some sort or another. And think of the fear. Barbara was talking about it today, you know, at seminar a little bit, the issue of when people fear, you know, unrestrained sexual desire, someone that, that has had abuse, it is, yeah, you have, they are very fearful. There is a reason for that fear, a very real reason for that. Unrestrained desire. What is the main difference between God and man? Think about it. What may think we're different from the animals. Okay, we won't go into all those issues. We say, hey, how are we like God? How are we different from God? Yes, we're not perfect. Yes, we're not uh, all-powerful. But we have power. We have the understanding. How are we different from God? The ability to restrain desire. Again, this is the point of the seventh day. God was able to stop. God is a God who knows when to stop. The people and the, the gods around them, they didn't know when to stop. The way that the stories of their gods, that they had unrestrained desire, they took whatever they wanted. But your God, children, you've got to remember, who was this written to? 
So when on the children of Israel, Moses wrote it, who were those people then? They were this people that just came out of Egypt. Again, think of this day of the six days of the labor and then the day of rest. This was a people who had lived in slavery for how many years prior to this? And their life was valued according to the number of bricks they could produce. So what's being given to them, Moses, you know, is God, and he gives the story, he says, your God is the God who knows when to stop. Your God is the God who will give you rest. They were working seven days a week, and if you didn't make enough bricks, you're done for. You're worthless. Think of the message it is to this people as they come out of Egypt that have been in slavery here. And this thing, you know, they lived in with a people and a pharaoh, uh, and where the people in power, power represented somebody who had unrestrained desire. And that is the evil, that is the sin. You, you look at the sin that comes into our lives, it's because of desire. Think of it in the New Testament. This goes back to the stuff I would have spoke to you about salvation. What is salvation? Yeah. All right. In the New Testament, what does Jesus say? What is the key? If you want to follow me, if any man will come after me, what? Let him deny himself. Let him restrain his desire. That is salvation. God said, if anyone's going to come after you, you're going to come with me to heaven. You have to learn to restrain your desire. The issue here is sin. And, what, and, and you look at the stories as they unfold from here, and they all are linked with this, this theme of desire. Can you restrain your desire? It's in the Cain and Abel story. It's in, it's in the uh, uh, Tower of Battle story. You go on down here. They're, 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 they're connected in this sense. Uh, it's the issue of learn to control your restrain, your desire. Now, okay, business ethics. Why do we have issues with business ethics? Why won't you pay your full taxes? Why won't you forgive somebody their rent? Why won't? And you, you know, these things that we, we develop, issue, you know, uh, we get into ethical conundrums on. And when we start to fail, why is it? Because we desire something. We want something. Right? In the end, we want the money they have. Okay? Why? That's why I come back to this now as you, as you look at it. Look at your, your life and how you live your life. What is the goal of your life? And these things that we have these, these ethical questions on, why are they questions? Okay? If we do this, what do you get out of it? Alright? And then, so if it's all out of to heap upon your desire, in the end, Okay, maybe we, we need to start rethinking this a little bit, all right? And so these things that we have these ethical considerations on, we're usually pushing the envelope because we want some kind of advantage. We want to get ahead. What if we stop and think, restrain my desire? Do I need that? What's more important? Uh, again, I wish I could uh, be in the... the the sessions I heard today really coincided a lot with, with last night and, and things I was thinking of. Um, 
it's, it's what you guys started, the how be thy name. What message uh, does it communicate to those around you? Uh, so you giving that extra month's rent, does that communicate more your desire, or does it communicate more God's love to that person? Which is it? Right? You start looking at that, it gets, it gets pretty stark. It gets pretty, you know, uncomplicated after a while. Now, but I'm going to complicate it back up for you here. Okay, so I started where I did last time on purpose. Because when I come to a place like this, I, I know myself, I know human nature, uh, and enough to know that we rarely, we rarely need to be encouraged rarely need to be encouraged to look out more for ourselves. Okay, so you know, almost always when I get asked, hey, i got an ethical situation for you I need help on, I rarely need to tell them, oh no, you're taking good, too good care of those people. You know, I rarely have to do that. The question usually comes, that's why I'm coming back to the attitude. Okay, normally the attitude is we want to get as much as I can, but my conscience is like, oh, sorry, can I stretch this? You know, before my conscience starts bothering me, or before somebody's going to look at me like I'm a bad guy. Uh, that's really the attitude that's done. And so if that's your attitude, stop. And that's why I said very clearly last time in a minute, if you're going to get into those situations and you can't handle it in your conscience in a free way, then don't be in that business. I, I mean that very bluntly. All right? But... I'm going to backtrack it a little bit because I'm going to say, let's take, let's take the, the rental situation. Alright? And like, like what I was faced with. Okay? It is not always what is best for that person to get away with not paying rent. Okay? Okay, if, if you can look at it in a pure mind and get your desire out of the equation, and you can look at it, what is best to glorify God in this person's life? Sometimes that means that that person needs to be held accountable. He needs to bear some repercussions. Okay? I firmly believe that with children. Yeah. Barbara uh, <laughs> uh, said it well. How, 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 how does he say that today? You know, the two-year-old... You know, I mean, he, he, he looks at you and he's, yeah, he's learned, he fusses and fusses and, you know, they, they quickly learn that if they get away with it, well, yeah, Congress whines enough and cause enough commotion, I can get what I want. You do that to a two-year-old, but you get to be 15-year-old, and Martin said, I know what your child's going to look like as a 15-year-old. Okay? I believe that. Um, and this is true out there. Sometimes that, that person out there uh, that you're dealing with does need to have repercussions there, okay? But you've got to be able to get your desire out of the equation. Because as soon as I say that, I know people go, yeah, see, I knew I could evict this anyway. And you end up getting what you want. Okay, that's not the point. Okay, the point is looking at what is best for them. Because you get your desire out of that equation. Most all these ethical considerations, they come up because we're struggling with our desire. So I'm saying get your desire out of there first before you take uh, you know any issues there. You are not God right, in that person's life, okay? But we but yes, we, we should look at it what is what is best for that person. As long as we can keep our desire out of there. We are not good as humans with being honest with ourselves. 
we, we, we think we have much better motives than we do. It is hard, but learn to do it. Learn to develop it. I believe as parents, we need to learn to help our children see through and analyze their own motives. I do that regularly with all my children, and have since they were little, when they could talk and carry on that conversation, which is much younger than people often give credit for, of, okay, stop. Why are you doing this? And take the time to stop and let them think through. Don't tell them. Let them think through, analyze their own motives. It's a good practice. A lot of young people, you know, they get to be young people and they, have, they don't even encounter them anymore. They have no control over uh, what their motives are and the ability to separate and think about what their motives are. All right? And so that's, and then we're bad as adults at it. But you've got to get that desire out of the equation. Now, so if we can, back to these ethical, yeah, sometimes they need to be held accountable. Uh, some people were mentioning, yeah, is there other ways to get a renter out of there? You know, do we believe that we should take them to court? I would say probably no. I would, I would, I mean, I would say no. I'm guessing you all would probably agree. No, we're not going to take them to court. Um, is there, uh, you know, so then they get to that next level. Can you get somebody else to take them to court, you know, if you have a property management or something? I, I think, again, your message, your values, your faith that you are living out flows through the people that you give agency to. That's a, that's a fancy word for who you give authority, they act on your behalf. So if your property management company does something unbiblical, that is the same as you doing it. Right? I think we need to look at it that way. Right? But you can go to that person and, and confront them with their issues. Um, um, somebody there, somebody had mentioned last night, you know, the, the keys for cash. Maybe you can just tell them, hey, you are really hurting me through this. I can't really, I need to have some money for this. Um, it is a rental. Uh, I'll tell you what, can I help you here get started somewhere else? I will give you X amount of dollars, you know, to so they will go somewhere else. That way, you know, they'll have money to, you know, get a deposit and start fresh somewhere else. I kind of be careful of that too. Sometimes you're you're putting your problem just on somebody else. You give them just enough money to go be somebody else's problem. But you know, there's uh, but there there are ways to work with those people. Uh, we talk about it even in jobs. And this is again an ethical consideration. What if somebody uh, uh, you're an employer, you know, you, you got a little work crew here, construction crew, and you got just an employee that says not worth his money. You know what? You know, you, you told me you pay him twenty bucks an hour, but he's you know he's not worth that, all right? How do you go about firing him? Uh, what what? Hey, again, what is the issue? Is the most important issue how much money you make off of him, or is the most important issue what that person thinks of God after having been in your presence? And so yeah, again, people need to be confronted. They're lazy, they're not showing up on time. They need help with that. And they make themselves a better person if they deal with that. People that are never dealt with don't learn to be better. They don't, they don't learn the consequences. Alright? But maybe you can go to them and explain, yeah, I'm gonna have to let you go. But then help them get another job, have a relationship with them, help them uh, help an outcome there where again God is God is glorified, God is glorified through that. Um, 
Are you able to separate your desire? We have become so ingrained where everything has to go in our favor. And I come back to that passage in Psalms. Are you able to swear to your own hurt? Now, the problem that comes in then is, uh, and I think it was, was uh, Noah was, was, was mentioning this earlier. He, was, he brought it up last night, a good point. Uh, afterwards, uh, if you are leveraged to the hills, if you are too tight yourself, okay, you cannot, like you say, in a rental situation, your overall financial picture, if you're leveraged and you can't afford for that person not to be paying rent, because it's going to sink you, that's when we often take it out on them. We got to do something. But what should that tell us about us? I'm looking for an answer here. Again, this is the self, the analyzation of, of yourself and your motives. If you, you have that renter and you can't even, you don't even have a choice because of how tight you are in giving him six months grace. Maybe this guy is really, you know, has some kind of calamity or something there and you actually, you know, it's not about your desire. You're like, man, I'd really love to help this guy, but I can't because I'm too, I, I gotta get these payments. I don't have enough money for these payments. What then? Get rid of the rental. What's that? Get rid of the rental. Get rid of the rental, right. Okay, that could be my answer. And the thing I should point to is maybe you shouldn't have that rental in the first place. Okay, this goes to how we're living our lives in our in our communities. We are, and again, we're and you know back in, in my former lives, uh, and you know in the MBAs, you know, teach you to maximize other people's money. They teach you all these things, and a lot of our people are adopting these business principles. And these business coaches are telling them this and this and this, and they get there and they get so stretched, they can't afford in a sense, to respond to God's Spirit and their leading in these ethical situations because they got themselves too, too tight. That actually, and I say it too tight in all these nice words, it's actually sin. Alright? The Bible teaches us that Christians should live in moderation. We should not be leveraged to the point where we can follow God's leading in helping other people or giving grace to people in these situations. It's actually wrong. And we're missing the concept, and again, your life and, and you know, our busyness, and, and, and I and I go full well when I say that, you know, and we all make excuses for our business. But you need to live life in moderation. You need to have margin in your life. You know what, I think our churches aren't effective because we got so many people that are maxed to the hill both financially and time-wise and just in their energies and their in their this world's pursuits. That they don't have time and space and and freedom and freeness to be able to stop and think, how can I further God's kingdom today? We live our life. And we, we, we see it all the time. The amount of leverage of debt, I'm going to say leverage, percent of debt that, that our communities live on, we, we constantly fight against it all over the place. 
And as the one young deacon there said in the one breakout session today, uh, why don't we preach more about this? Uh, and then the next guy said, yeah, but I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. But we have to come to Christ. But it comes back to the issue. It's why I went this, this path with you. It comes back to our desires. Why is it there? When you're letters like that, go look at your desires. Your unrestrained desires. God said from the very beginning, his, his main point, his message in Genesis 1 and 2 when he created us was know when to stop. Give yourself time to be present with me. But we ignore it. I know I, I have ignored it an awful lot in my life. But yet we want the blessing and the joys of Christian life and God and all that. But we refuse to do what it takes to be intensely present with God. So, I got lots of ground I'd love to cover in 10 minutes. Uh, one other angle that I put in with here is, is investments. I don't know if I've covered a whole lot on investments. I heard a little chatter of some, whatever. But somebody, again, evaluate your investments the same way. The idea of unrestrained desire. One, okay, so your investments is just like your life, just like your business ethics. Your investment should be an extension of your faith with that. So we get into some of these investments. I'll uh, tell you a story here. Uh, got a loan application here. It's probably been a month and a half ago now. And uh, it, was, it was a couple of guys uh, buying, uh, three guys put together in a property, uh, real estate, and for their business, they were buying this property. And you know, their actual request wasn't too bad, you know. Fairly um, um, sizable dollar value property there, but it was for good use in their business. Uh, but then I looked at their personal financial statements. And these guys were borrowed in a hill on quite a bit of stuff. Uh, so you know, pretty high dollars and high leverage on it all. And these are young guys, right? And I saw the one guy particularly caught my eye because he had some family money, and then he had this and some other investments, and then he had this section of other investments. Uh, and some were detailed, you know, it was just kind of vague, and then others were fairly specific, and one said the cryptocurrency. Uh, yeah, investors, I'm, I'm looking at this, at, at, at this uh, who this guy was, and he was about a, he was like 31, 32 years old, and, and those kind of things always kind of uh, intrigued me, because, again, in one of my former lives, you know, I, I was, a, I was, uh, yeah, in some interesting fields, okay, let's put it that way. Uh, and uh, and so I was kind of intrigued, so I thought, hey, I, I've given it to one of the other guys to review, and I said, hey, when it comes back to me, before, before I finally give a final approval, I at least, you know, if it gets past him and gets a final approval to me, I want to call that guy. And there's more or less, I'm just curious. I'm just curious what, what's going through this guy's mind. So I, I called, uh, he came back, and, and so I called the guy up, and, and a lot of my uh, gut feel for what this young fellow would be like that was right. But I was wrong in, 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 in some points. But I, I started asking, say, this is cryptocurrency, so what, what's, what's this for? Oh, yeah, no, it's an investment, you know, investment, 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 investment. 
Yeah, it's just something good. Well, at that time, it started to fall a little bit, so it wasn't quite so good. But uh, if I just asked, I said, well, tell me, how, how do you value that? You know, how, how do you know whether it's a good value or, or what value are you going to sell at? You know, how, how are you valuing whether you're doing well or not and what should be a good point to sell? And he just kind of went around and went around. And I said, so what, what's a good value on this? And well, I said, it's going to go up. It's going to go up. Uh, in the end, is what I suspected. Uh, he knew, he had read, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there online and stuff. You can read about cryptocurrency and all that. And so he, he read all the stuff that's out there a lot. But did he really understand what it is, how it works? No. He had no idea. Uh, well, he thought he had an idea, but he was way off. Uh, and my point in this, I'm not going to sit down there. I'd love to talk to you privately about investments, but I got to get that intrigue me in. I have some past history with that. But my point is you should look at your investments just like everything. What, what your business, you should be in a business that you feel you can impact lives for God. You can bring some kind of good or service to somebody and be a veteran to society. And then also through that, you know, have a way to spiritually impact people. That should be your goal with your, your business. That should be your goal with investments too. So, again, I, I say this coming from a trader background, okay? Um, forgive me. Uh, but I see people dabbling in stuff that, for one, they don't even know really what it's about. They don't know how to value it. They're just jumping on the latest family, all right? And old, old, uh, old Pete, no, I can't say his name, uh, the, old, the old Magellan guy after 20 years, used to say, don't invest in anything you don't understand. That's a good rule. And I think for us as people, again, the issue of margin and stuff, if, if be careful, and I'm not, I'm not here to tell you, give you a list of right and wrong. I'm here to challenge you. Look at what your desire is. And look at the unrestrained desire is where sin is at. Be, God has said, restraining that desire is how you'll be able to follow me. And so if you're just out there doing, what is your motive for investing in that thing? And how can you impact the kingdom by investing in that thing? Right? Analyze it. Again, learn to analyze your motives. That's, that is what's important. The issue here is we have all down through the Bible this issue, this theme of God said, I have one thing. You can have the whole garden, but there's one thing I reserve for me. And man took it. As you look through the stories of the Old Testament, they are often linked by this thing of the forbidden fruit. Uh, we go up to Abraham. By the way, there's a word there in the story of Hadar and Abraham. And, and Abraham slept. And the word for slept is only used twice in Scripture. There and when Adam slept before Eve was created. Right? The stories of Abraham and Hagar and the story of the tree are connected. Right? What was Hagar to Abraham? Forbidden fruit. It's the one thing he wasn't supposed to take. It was, it was immoral. What did God do to Abraham at the end? As, as, as Abraham responded to God, we have Abraham as a friend of God, you know, and a, a great man of God. But as God kept working in his life, towards the end of Abraham's life, what did God test him with? His own son. His desire. His desire. 
And the issue, he says, hey, Abraham, you have one thing I know you don't want me to have. Remember that fruit? I have one thing I told you guys not to touch. I'm going to ask for your one thing. And that's the story of that thing of Abraham and the offering of Isaac there. Of course, it is the foreshadowing of, of God. He has his only begotten son, his one thing that he freely gave for us. And that thought, that dynamic, is what should drive your business ethics. God gave, freely gave his only son for you. And you're sitting there squibbling over people for this and that, trying to gain the last dollar. Okay? If that's your attitude, again, there's other things, there's legitimate ways to, to do things, right ways to do it, but watch out because too many times our motives is we want that last dollar. Unrestrained desire. But remember, as Jesus hung on that cross, he is walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he's walking with you today. In Jesus' lack of time, as we make our decisions too many times selfish on us, Christ is still on that cross today. Do you understand that? In God's time, there's no concept of time. Is Jesus is intensely present with you today, even as he hangs on the cross today. In the moment in which you make that decision, whether it's for yourself or for God's kingdom, Jesus is hanging on that cross. Am I getting through you at all? Do you understand? And it's kind of a little bit weird, but in God, there's no, there is no the concept of time that we follow. And that's how we get out. You know, we, oh, that's a long time ago. Oh, dude, I'm not going to No, it's all in one day. And God wants to be intensely present with you today. He wants to be intensely present with you as you make that decision, as you confront that business ethical question. God wants you to be intensely present with Him and answer the question that way. I guarantee you, you will find the right answer. If, if you pursue God in that way, if you pursue the question in that way, you will find the answer that God wants you to preach. Blessings to you. Let's continue with the end. Thank you. You're going to have to come again and get finished. <laughs>